Welcome to the Beaver Legends series with Tim Varner. So, uh, Dr. John Wormsley, thank you very much for taking part in this edition of the Beaver Legends series podcasts. Uh, as I ask every one of our, uh, um, our interviewees, uh, why does a young John Wormsley uh, from Shropshire decide he wants to be a vet? And why in particular does he decide he wants to work with horses? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm very honoured to be asked to do this. Uh, but I started living in Shropshire. I lived in the hills of Shropshire. It was a very uh, bucolic upbringing, and my best friends were farmers. And uh, I always wanted to be a vet from them for some reason. Never quite, never quite understood why. And it just went on from there. So I just, just. Uh, pursued the path right through to university. And why in particular the horses? What was the main? Well, that that only came later. I, I was always much more interested in cattle than sheep to start with. And I worked in Cardiganshire, Cardigan and then Cornwall and then New Zealand on cattle practice, in cattle practice. And always a little bit scared of horse practice and I didn't know much about it. But then I worked in the South Island of New Zealand, and the guy who did all the horses left. And so I was pitched into it and got a real taste for it. I liked the individual aspect of it, just treating individual patients, and there's perhaps a bit more surgery, that kind of thing. And so it built up from there. And then we, this, we traveled a lot for about six years when I was first qualified and from New Zealand. After three years, I went to Australia and had a while in, a, in another cattle practice in the Yellow Warrow in, in New South Wales. And then we went on to to Bunbury and got a wonderful job there with a guy who ran the whole, looked after most of the horses in southwest Australia, really, Mike Sear, who was a great guy to work for. He, he taught me a tremendous amount. We sometimes examined 100 mares a day in the stud season, and it was a fantastic place to get experience. And so, so when I came back to the UK, Looking to settle down because our children by then were about seven and never been to school. I um, I found, thought, well, there's no, no. This is 1970s. There's no work in in cattle practice in the 70s. A big depression then, and I enjoyed the horses. So I thought I'll, I'll follow up the horse work. And I met up with Richard Hartley, who was then president of Beaver, and we agreed that I would join him with a view to buying him out while he retired. So I went back to Australia and finished off my time there with Mike Sear. And Richard died, dropped dead in the outside the, the clinic one morning. And his wife, we got this telegram on Christmas Eve one day, on Christmas Eve, saying, Richard has died, I'm holding the practice for you. <laughs> so it was a sort of life-changing moment. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were in Australia at this time? Yeah, I was in, in Perth, Australia. yeah, in Bunbury. And so we left Perth. Uh, on Friday night and started work on Monday morning in Liphook. Pretty sure we flew on Friday, the next Friday night. <laughs> From all the travelling. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, and were you so, on your own at this point? Yeah, well, there was a couple of people in the practice and um, Richard had asked them to leave because he thought it was only room for one person in the practice. So 
I started off on my own there. I bought the practice house up over three months and then was really started from scratch because Richard was very, he was a wonderful vet, but he was very idiosyncratic and his clients followed him really. They, they were his clients. So it was like starting again. And I'd been out of the country for about six years. So I didn't, I'd forgotten about the English psyche. It was a really hard time to settle, settling down to understand that English patients, you didn't say to your client, look, this horse is stuffed, mate, shoot it, like you would in Australia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to be a bit more circumspect. So we learned the hard way, but that's where it all started. And, and that's then, the practice that is now Lipok. Yeah, it was just a, it was an empty barn, really old, empty, rough barn. And uh, I, got, I got a wonderful guy from Australia to come and help me after a few months. And he was a terrific help because I was terribly inexperienced. And he, he was an experienced horse vet and he had personal problems. Arthur, Arthur Young, he was called. He was a great guy. And he came over and sort of taught me a lot of basics, that, like a lot of nerve blocking, that sort of thing. I was really very, very inexperienced. And... <clears throat> He got me going, really. Uh, then he went back to Australia after about six months. But then we sort of took some, some people and gradually, another person who gradually the, the practice grew. And very soon I sort of thought, well, doing this in the field, all, you know, doing everything in the field, radiographs and all the minor surgery is just hopeless. It's all sort of very second rate. And so I vowed then to set up what eventually became a hospital practice. So I started persuading clients to come into us, which was hardly done then. This is 1976. There's only there's uh, John Aliff in, in um, Kent and people at Oakham, Gibson, Mike Gibson's practice in Oakham, were one of the few practices that were doing this sort of thing. And uh, Rossdale's, of course. Um, so that, that gradually built up and so it took it just we worked out, we just gradually increased the numbers over the years. Really built up the practice, doing the grind, really, you know, rasping teeth, vaccinating, giving a good service. Yeah. And then the referral service started to kick in after a while. Sure. Blimey. And you say you, you, you traveled prior to coming back to the UK with your family. Uh, so yeah. obviously, I mean, yeah. uh, with your your list of uh, places that you were, you travelled a, a, a lot in those early days. Didn't yeah. you? It was Australia, it was the UK, Australia, yeah. South Africa, New Zealand. So yeah. that must have been incredible travelling around with the family. And... Yeah, well, we had we had lots of babies on the way, so we started with one baby and a pregnant. Caroline was very pregnant, so right. we immigrated to New Zealand as a ship. They paid you to go there. Then you could, they paid, they would do anything to get bets. And so we were there for three years, and then. Australia for a couple of years and um, then South Africa had a couple of babies in New Zealand and so we had three babies by the time we'd um, <laughs> finished all that and we then we traveled in Canada and South, South America and one or two other places and just getting having fun getting experience and they were you might have noticed they were all places near the seas and I, I was a fanatical surfer then and I, yeah, I still we, am. We, we, we... <laughs> Yeah, we'll come. I, I did know that actually. I've heard of the, the the legend of your surfing, so we'll come back to that later on. So, but uh, yeah, they are all close to the sea, aren't they? So yes. Even the Wales one. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah. no, that's 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 incredible. That's incredible. So, um, 
the next question I'll ask is, um, and I think you've already mentioned a couple of names already, but uh, and feel free to mention them again, but um, it's really great to find out who you would consider are the legends that you consider the, the, the vets that yeah. are the legends and who have you looked up into, looked up to in your career? Yeah. Well, the two people that really shaped my thinking and my attitude to veterinary practice were one was a chap called Harold Jones in Knighton in Radnorshire, in mid Wales. I saw practice with him and I worked briefly with him and he, he had a wonderful practice. He'd started after the war when he came back from the RAF and built up this small but very efficient practice. He, he, picked, he learned all the diseases in the area. Anything that he didn't understand, he worked out what the problem was, how you treat it. All the vaccination programs are well sorted in the area. And he had a wonderful ethic. The clients really respected him, didn't ever cross him. If you, if you cross him or went anywhere else, he wouldn't see you again. He was very, had very strong ethics. <laughs> And he, had, and he had a really efficient outfit. We, we used to do 600 sheep Caesars a year in the practice. And it was so simple and efficient. It, it just it struck me. And his, his attitude stuck with me always. And then Mike Sear in, in Western Australia was the other one. He, he was a tremendous hard worker, another very ethical, straightforward, honest guy, and tried to do the best he could for the horses and the clients and taught me how to work hard and how to put everything into it and, and be as straight as you can with the clients and try and, try and achieve high standards. Yeah, so they were two, yeah. And 600 uh, sheep seizures a year is uh, good <laughs> surgical training for anybody, isn't it, really? <laughs> he, he would do them, and they were so efficient, he would do them in... So 15, 20 minutes and everything was as simple as anything. Incredible, yeah. incredible. Impressive. And um, any um, sort of current vets that you would look up to as legends and people that you have respected in your time of working in, in more recent times? Yeah, well, Peter Rossdale is always somebody who, and I gather he's just died recently, which is very sad, but... He has, yeah, very, yeah. very recently, actually, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, very, very sad, but uh, yes. um, an incredibly long-lived life, and yeah. he filled a filled a filled his life with a lot of things. So yeah, he's, uh, contributed he's, a great yeah. deal to the profession too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. absolutely, in many, many ways, mm. and outside of the practice as well as within the practice. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, and, and Twink yeah. Adam is another one. He, 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 he a rather enigmatic sort of character. But yeah. we, I first met Twink when I was a student. He, he arrived at Cambridge to do a PhD with Roger Short, who Roger Short didn't even know he was coming. <laughs> so Roger said, "Well, I'm doing a PhD with you." So Roger said, "Well, I suppose you'll have to." <laughs> and, and Twink used to have these ponies at, in in the farm at Cambridge and. There were three of us, Tim Fison and Brandon Bath and myself, three in that year. We all used to practice everything we could on these ponies, rasp their teeth, stomach tubes, and all sorts of things. And took us a great sort of help to us. And we've kept up with him all our lives, really. So it was sad to see him go. But he's contributed a massive amount to the profession in his time. Yeah. And both lost yeah. in the same year. Tragic, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, on a slightly cheerier note, and I think you've already alluded to it, so uh, it's now time to tell me about the surfing. Well. <laughs> Your passion's <laughs> away from work. That's what uh, yeah, well, the surfing's obviously won. So how did that start? Well, that started when I was working on a building site in California, actually, when I was about 20 or something like that. Got a one of these student flights to the States and a Greyhound bus across to California, worked on a building site for three or four months, and everyone was surfing. This is 1962 or something, something like that. And um, so I thought I'll have kind of a crack at this and got completely hooked, and ever since then I've been <laughs> hooked on it. When I started the practice, I didn't do very much for five or six years, and then did it more on holidays, and, and now since I retired, I've been surfing a lot more. But I Actually, suddenly, at 77, you're not quite so good as you thought you were. <laughs> so, not quite, you don't quite get the strength or the suppleness, but I still can, I'll still go out when it's good enough. Oh, I sail good. a lot, and I do, we do a lot of sailing. I've got, a, I've got a racing dinghy, which I race locally, and um, a yacht, which we sail, sail around, around the coast and across to Ireland and that kind of thing. But oh, I, I'm very, yeah. natural history is one of my, one of my real passions. So I'm a keen bird watcher and I'm very involved with sustainability at the moment. So I've joined the Beaver Sustainability um, Committee and I also persuaded the Royal College to join the Health Alliance on the Climate Change, which is the medical oh, colleges brilliant. that got together to lobby government on, on sustainability problems associated with health. They wanted vets to come on board, so I persuaded the RCVS to join up with that and then we started a working group in the RCVS, which has done a lot, and they're, they're now planning to impose regulations on the profession through the practice standards scheme on sustainable practice within within the practices. And what does that involve, John, in terms well, of sustainability? What are the key points? That, well, the key that, points that, are really energy you use, mm. uh, reusables, not you know. Single-use plastics, cutting down on that, travel, all the sort of very basic things. It's, it's a lot of it's pretty basic, but but you can you can make quite a difference. Mm. I mean, it is incredible when you do a, a joint medication, for example. Yeah. You look at the the, yeah. the try it the after the the, the, the amount of plastic yeah. paper and everything yeah. that is that is, is involved yeah. in that. It's certainly, it's it's huge amounts. And then yeah. across hospitals like our hospitals, it's vast amounts of waste yeah. and everything every day, isn't it? So yeah, you look at the end of a surgery, you look at all the stuff that goes down the end of the bed, you think, God, that's, these huge drapes that cost a fortune and all the plastics, all the reusable stuff. The humans have done a lot of work on this and, and the NHS are having a big go at, at imposing this on the NHS. and the, and I went to a meeting recently where some surgeons had done a study where they'd looked at appendicectomies and they'd taken out everything they could, all the great, all the instruments they don't need, all the uh, reusable, the non-reusable stuff, and they they showed a picture of the two uh, two um, amounts of equipment used and all the consumables before and after, and it was like about a quarter. And they save something like they they do seven hundred. I can't remember how many appendicectomies a year, but they they saved about seventy thousand quid, and their carbon footprint was reduced absolutely dramatically 
just with these simple, just simply looking at what they were doing and, and changing what they thought they could change. And that's incredible. I mean, if the if the NHS is doing it, then surely as a profession, the yeah. veterinary world can quite easily follow yeah. that. Really, I, th- I think they will. There's a lot of action. Like vets sustain are really forging ahead. And Ellie West at um, Davis's practice uh, is a real leader in the field. So it's all it's out there. I think people are ready for it. Yeah, definitely. It seems to be there was a sustainability section at Beaver this year, so yeah. it's certainly something that is, and I yeah. think, yeah, it's probably something that will continue as we go forwards. And, yeah, I hope uh, so. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to, really, won't we? Yeah, so, no choice. So, yeah. so yes, definitely uh, lots of water involved in your passions away from work, hence, <laughs> uh, as I can see, everywhere that you've worked, including Lippock, has been close to the sea, so uh, but, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you would have done differently in your career? Uh, yes. Although I think probably it would have been difficult in the view of the, the way we started the practice, all the grind that involves building up a practice. It, once it was established, I think I wish, looking back, I'd done more evidence research. In other words, looking more at outcomes and trying to publish more. We pub- did publish quite a bit, but... As I got, There's quite a list here on your CV, yeah, this, so that's... <laughs> tailed off a bit, and I found when I was involved with Beaver and then with ECVS and HPLB, you have less and less time, and you're pulled away from your practice a lot, and I just wish I'd stuck with it and paid more attention to recording cases and recording outcomes, which I try to do a lot, but could have done more, could have set it up better in the practice. And I think that, that, that would have helped. And the other thing I'd like to have done in the practice, which would have been quite expensive, would be to set up some sort of um, post-mortem room or place where you could practice, look at your anatomy, practice surgery. Because after I retired, I was asked to go to um, Melbourne to, to help get the surgery department going, and then to Sweden as a visiting professor to help get their surgery department going for a few years. And there I realized, because we've got the facility in the university, you can, you can do these things, and we're teaching, teaching the young vets to do surgery. I thought, God, I would have been a much better surgeon if I'd done this 25 years ago and spent more time doing it. But I guess looking yes. back, you know, you're so busy at that stage, aren't you? You're in your 40s, you're at the peak of your practice, your family are busy, your kids are being educated, and you don't quite have the time. And it's finding that time, isn't it, John? It's yeah, actually allocate. Yeah. It's not so much just the facility. It's allocating that time because I think, yeah. and it's the the there's some surgeries that we don't do every day, every week, every yeah. month, and it's important, yeah. isn't it, to go back? Yeah. And it has to be easy, doesn't it, to yeah. fit into the. Yeah. And I think that can be extrapolated to every section of. Our, it's finding that time, isn't it, to yeah. to do those things. Yeah. Making the time. You've just got to make the time, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, as you say, making rather than finding. I think yeah. that's the main thing, isn't it? So, um, and was there anything that you would consider um, was a failure in your career and, and or failures? And um, when you look back on it, how do you think it changed you? It's hard to say, really. I, I guess family must have suffered, so 
that's probably one failure, but although we're a very close family and they all seem to be all right. Uh, all those years of working every weekend and all, every night for a while was not great for family, but I think I think lots of, there are lots of small failures. Everybody who does surgery on horses has failures, no matter what they say. Yeah. And they they can be quite disastrous too, can't they? You get the fracture that wrecks itself getting up and surgeries didn't go that well and then the horse never did any good, never went back into work and so on. And there are lots of those and they haunt you for the rest of your career and I think they all change you a bit. They all make you a little bit more determined to improve even though you still have more disasters, <laughs> no matter what. But I think I think that's probably I think it's the small it's the individual failures that that, that hold me most of all. And I think in this modern world as well, is these failures are scary from various other reasons other than the fact of just being failures. I mean, there is so much accountability in modern yeah. veterinary practice. It does yeah. worry many, many people that failures, um, it's very hard to find the positives in failures, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I, I understand is right, that's what you meant about sort of the, yeah. the failures happen and then you have to strive not to make that failure again. And I think it's a, it's a difficult thing in the modern veterinary world with lawyers around. Uh, yeah. That's always a problem, isn't it? For yeah. People and, and um, social media. I'm glad. I'm glad that wasn't really in full swing when I was in practice. I think yeah. that can be very damaging. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I think there's a lot of people struggling with social media and people yeah. complaining about them on social media for pretty innocuous things. Yeah. So. yeah. And yeah. on the flip side of uh, talk of failures, what are the things that you would say you're most proud of in your career? Well, I, I think. I think it was my generation that, that brought their quiet practice into the 20th, 21st century. I, th I think my, I'm most proud of the fact that very early on we said, right, we're going to do everything as best we can, regardless of the cost. So we, we, we've got, when new, new techniques come in, we've got to learn them. When new, new technologies come in, we've got to buy them and learn how to use them and follow the best protocols with everything we do, which wasn't really done when I started practice. Things were pretty um, rough and ready, I think you could say, in horse practice in the 19, early 1970s. And there were very few hospitals, there weren't any hospitals really, and very few people tried to do things as like to the, to the best of their ability, to the best, to the best standard that's available. And one of the things that changed me actually was when I was late 30s, early 40s, when I was 40, I was actually, I damaged my wrist very badly. And so my partners, I, I used to keep pigs. I killed a pig and cut my hand and cut my wrist <laughs> on my 40th birthday and couldn't cut all the tendons in the wrist. So it had to be repaired. It took two months for that to recover. So my partner said, for Christ's sake, get out of our hair. <laughs> you're, a, you're a menace here go to the States and learn something. So I spent a month going from went to Colorado to with Wayne McElroy from Alan Nixon in Florida. I went to um, New Bolton Center for a while. And it taught me there 
that the standards you could achieve, you know, you could you could wear decent clothing for surgeries. You could you could wear masks and gowns and you know, glove up properly, make sure everything's as sterile as possible, drape the horses properly, and all this sort of thing. And so that was a big turning point. And it went on from there, really. But I th luckily, I had partners who were right with me. That was the best thing about my practice was the partners. And it was the team sort of yeah. ethos. There was the, the same ethos and there was a team that was driving that with you. It's yeah. super important, isn't it, in any yeah. practice to yeah. all be heading in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, the if you could pick out three things and they can be anything what three things would you say have been the most important things in your career and you can pick one of those that if you were starting out tomorrow you couldn't possibly be without well they're, they're pretty basic really i think a good wife is the top <laughs> of the list <laughs> Because it's a hell of a strain to be married to vets. And I don't think I'd have survived it without my wife. And then your partners, I think, choosing your partners. Jeremy Mantel was my first partner. And he was absolutely a godsend. The sort of guy you'd, you'd go to war with and go over the top with him and be absolutely sure that he'd be right there with you. <laughs> and then the other partners, Giles Hermes and... Um, Stuart Duncan, Tim Phillips all came on board and we all got on very well, we all had the same attitude and that made a huge difference and so the, the, the practice team would be the other thing, the next thing and then I think uh, another thing which I really enjoyed and, and, and gave me a lot of broaden my horizons was the, the being members of the Bentley Advisor Committee to the Horse Race Bedding Levy Board that was really interesting stuff because I was looking at all the, the projects, proposals for grants from the HBLB. And that, in those days, we had a couple of million to give out. And so I learned a lot because there's some really good minds on that committee. I was a practitioner, me and John Parker, but there's some really good people, Alan and Hugh Miller and people like that. So I learned a huge amount from that. And, and the other thing was, I think the time with Beaver on the Beaver committee, you learn a lot of what all the problems of the profession are and you feel you can give something back. And you get to know a broader range of, of colleagues. And the ECVS, I, did, I did, did a lot with that. I really enjoyed that. And that's another thing that broadened my horizons and uh, gave me a lot of interest and I felt you were sort of contributing a little, giving a little bit back, which I think is quite important. Yeah, definitely. You can, you've, you've definitely put a lot of time into all of those organisations. Yeah. Looking at your list there throughout, and and obviously you've you've been involved in credentials and examination um, bits yeah. and pieces for the surgery college yeah. as well, which must have also been uh, quite. A lot of work. A it was, work and it takes that, a lot sorry. of time, which is, which is why I didn't publish so much in those days, I think, because those things took a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of intellectual effort, too. Yeah, 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 they do take a lot of time. Yeah. So. And so out of those things, 
I think I can guess what it's going to be, but what is the one thing that you would <laughs> be without at all in your career? You couldn't do without a wife. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is going to be very happy to hear you say that. That's incredible. So. Well, you know as well. Oh, well, well <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Thank you very much for taking part in this podcast uh it's been a wonderful insight to uh, a definite legend of the equine profession in the in the uk and in the world so thank you very much on behalf of everybody listening uh, it's been incredible uh, incredible listen thank you it's a pleasure i've really enjoyed it <laughs> thanks thank Tim. you very much bye this episode of beaver pod was produced by beaver for more details on the benefits of your beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.